The rest, the respite, the peace, the tranquility of faith. And my hope this morning is that through what I can share with you from the scriptures, that God would help us to put those two things together, that, that, which, that whilst there is more, and that's exciting, it needn't be stressful, as perhaps it sometimes might feel demanding that there's more to get hold of. Actually, in God's wisdom and in the life that he has planned for us, there's this wonderful mixture of there being more and also tranquility. And that's what we're aiming for this morning. And that is something I'd like to pray for. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to get hold of this dynamic of faith afresh this morning. It's just about trusting in you. We trust in you for the increase of your kingdom in our lives amongst all those whom we care for. And we pray too for uh, an, an increased ability to trust you that we might be at rest, knowing that you are active in us and around us, our saviour, our protector, our guide, our leader. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now then, uh, as we're gathered as uh, several churches together this morning, I need to say something about regional vision, not just local vision. We all live in a local community somewhere, and with the offering that we've just taken for Ben and Michelle, we've had our eyes lifted to the ends of the earth. I think West Africa and the desert there counts as the one part of the ends of the earth. But in Acts chapter 1, it's recorded for us that Jesus said to his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which was then their local community, and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I wonder what for us is our Judea and Samaria? What is our region? We've got our local community. We've had our eyes lifted to the ends of the earth. But what is our Judea and Samaria? For many of us, it has been Oxfordshire. Some of you in writing checks a minute ago will have written them out to Oxfordshire community churches because that is a charity that some of our churches are part of and which we continue to operate. Uh, But as we've grown, our eyes have lifted beyond the borders of Oxfordshire. Wow. And for, as we've developed from just one grouping of Oxfordshire community churches into three different regions, as many of you will know, there's a region in the west of the county, West Oxfordshire community churches, who are praying about the Cotswolds and on towards the M5 and Cheltenham and beyond. Their eyes have lifted beyond the border that's somewhere near Burford. For those who are making up South Oxfordshire community churches, uh, they have been occupied with the market towns of South Oxfordshire. God's lifted their eyes and they've spotted the M4. (laughs) And they can see all of these cities along the M4. And God's lifted their eyes to begin to pray for their region. 
beyond their Jerusalem. For us, as central Oxfordshire community churches, God's begun to raise our eyes in a new way towards the north and the east. You know, I spent ages producing a little map that showed this really neatly. There we go. M5, M4. And then somewhere between the M1 and the M40, this area to the north and east of where we're sat this morning is becoming our Judea and Samaria. Mark Ely, where's Mark? Has he gone out or is he still in? Hey, Mark had a dream. I've, met, I've, I've turned this into graphics. I hope this is going to work. You have to tell me afterwards if it's exactly how your dream looked. But this is rough geography. Um, geographers, please bear with me. Roughly, the different places where the congregations uh, and groups gathered here this morning come from. And Mark had a dream in which Kidlington and Bister and Banbury were joined up in a triangle like the sail of a boat. Is this all right so far? And then that was attached to a boat that was in the city. Now, at this point, Tring might be feeling a little bit left out. Don't worry. It's okay. It's going to get better in just a moment. Because what he then saw was a wind blowing and taking the whole thing eastwards. And when did you have that dream, Mark? Feels like it was about a year ago. Somewhere between six and 12 months ago. And as that, uh, some of you are hearing that for the first time this morning, but it's been one of those dreams that as many people have heard it, there's been this resonance in many people's hearts and minds that says, you know what? Yes. Yes. It's about time that we lifted our eyes from our own Jerusalems and we had a Judea and a Samaria about which to be concerned. You know what? There's a lot of people in that M1, M40 corridor. I tried to work this out. And it's all about people. God loves people. In all of the places that we come from, I've included the Lees in Oxford for the sake, because the, the, I hope you don't mind, but the population of Oxford, they don't separate the Lees out. So I've just added up the numbers. Just over a quarter of a million people in our towns and city whom God loves. There's a little bit of an infographic here. If a quarter of a million people is a blob that size, in, along the M1 and M40 corridors, there's all these towns and cities, some with more people in than in all of the places where we are currently. And God loves those people too. He really loves them. He cares for them. He wants to engage our hearts and minds in concern for our region, the people whom he loves. Actually, you know what? At either end of the uh, M40 and sort of at one end of the M1 and near part of the M1, there's another couple of places too. One of them is Birmingham. And there's this little village as well called London. There's a lot of people whom God loves. He wants to expand our hearts to be concerned for those people. Um, Just to be really clear, this isn't just about some sort of expansion of the salt and light empire. You know what? There are salt and light churches in most of those places already. 
in Milton Keynes and Northampton, in Birmingham and in London. There are people in our network of churches there already, but there are many places that God wants to engage us in praying for. Maybe there are ways that we can find to support some of those churches. And undoubtedly, there are some places where churches need to be planted. Uh, I had an email a couple of weeks ago from friends in Wheatley, which isn't so very far away from here towards the east. Uh, actually, it's an email where, there was, you know, in an email, you get a whole, can get a whole conversation of different things people are saying. And in this conversation, it made it clear that the leaders of all the churches in Wheatley think that an evangelical church should be planted there. There are places, and this is not, it's not normally how it works with church planting. Some of you will understand that. Often the way it works is you turn up and everyone thinks that you're arrogant and isolationist and so on, and it takes some years to become friends. That's not how it is there. There's a common understanding that there's a need uh, for an evangelical church uh, to be planted. There are places where churches need to be planted. In some places, there are already effective churches. What does this mean for us? You know, if we go back to the book of Acts and ask how did they expand into Judea and Samaria, it was quite, we could say, organic. Um, A more analytical person might say a bit random. What actually happened was that people spread because of the way, just the way life happened. For them, it was a persecution. There was a persecution in Jerusalem, and so they had to move out. One of the people who moved out from Jerusalem was Philip, who went to Samaria, preached the word of God, and God started to do some stuff. And they said, whoa, this is more than we expected. We better get some of the apostles up from Jerusalem to work out what to do with this. And in no time at all, there was a new church community and a transformed city burning their occult manuscripts in the public square. Miracles that no one had ever dreamed could happen taking place right through their community. Um, It's interesting, having Milton Keynes up here, just last weekend we prayed for a great family who are in the church here who are moving to Milton Keynes. They moved at about a month's notice uh, because training required it. I don't know in what practical ways God will engage different ones of us and people with whom we're connected in, in all of these places. There's a pretty steady flow of people that, goes from, that go from this neck of the woods to London. That's for sure. And some that come back the other way. This is not just a set of random places. These are places with which we have real connection. Even if it's only occasional but they're connections through which God wants to work and to make a difference. Let's pause. Vision for a region is more. The rest of faith, there's more there for us to take hold of. Can be exciting. Uh, Can be stressful. I don't know how many of you are thinking, brilliant, we can go off and do something else. And how many of you are thinking, oh, really? Do we have to? 
The same Jesus who said to his disciples in Jerusalem, you'll be my witnesses to the region, to the ends of the earth, also said to them, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so somehow these two things come together. We can be witnesses, but not wearied. Engaged, but not exhausted. Going, but not ground down. We can buy in without being burdened. And in order to explore that a little bit, we're going to have a look at a few bits of the Bible and what it has to say to us about rest. Right at the beginning, it's one of the first things that comes up in the Bible is rest. If you turn to Genesis chapter 1, at the end of the first story of creation, what we discover is that Eden, although it's only named as such in the next chapter, was a place of rest. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day, and thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. He rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day, And made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. Very brief aside for uh, to note, since we're talking about creation and questions about creationism, evolution and so on. In the whole of the Old Testament, the main bit that is drawn out of the creation stories is those few verses. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, it says, since God rested, we too should rest. That's the main point that the whole of the people of Israel found in the creation stories. Whatever, whatever else we read there, let's not lose sight of what they saw to be the main thing. We're making it our main thing this morning. I'd like to note just two things. The first was that the result of God's creative work was called rest. Rest wasn't just an absence of something. It was something that was possible because of the work that God had done. Rest followed on from God saying, it's very good. What I've done is very good. Now we'll rest. Rest, therefore, properly understood, as the scriptures teach us, rest is a sign of God being in charge. When God's will is done, then there is rest. We might say that rest is a sign of the kingdom of God, where his kingly rule is established, there we find rest. In Eden, it was the place of God's rest. It was the place where all was well. Everything was as it should be, as God's will was done. 
and therefore there was rest. It's one of the, this word rest. It's like the word peace. Often we use the word peace in English to mean the absence of conflict. You know, people aren't taking lumps out of each other. There's peace. But the Hebrew idea of peace, shalom, is much bigger. It means well-being. There's, you know, things are okay. And it's like that with the word for rest as well. It doesn't just mean I'm so knackered I need to sleep. You know, the phone's not ringing. There's a richer, deeper, and better state of being than exhausted, uh, catatonic you know, paralysis. It, it gets better than that in the kingdom of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, when God made people, men and women, the first thing that they experienced was this rest. This was how life began. Uh, For reasons of history, Sunday is the first day of the week, not the last. And that's appropriate. It wasn't chosen that way with reference to rest. It was to do with the resurrection and celebration. But it doesn't half work for us to understand that today is the beginning of the week that is to come and that will end next Saturday. We start on a Sabbath day. We start in a place of rest. Humanity began in a place of rest and moved out from that place of rest to do work. Rest isn't about collapsing at the end of the week. It's about the place where we're meant to begin. And that rest is possible for us because God is active. We can rest because God's at work. That's a foundational understanding of what it means to be human, and it's right there at the beginning of the Old Testament. I want to jump forward to Psalms and to read from Psalm 95. And I need to speed up just a little bit, so bear with me. Psalm 95, and the end of verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice... Don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. This is, a, this is the generation of the Hebrews who'd come out from Egypt in the Exodus, approached the promised land quite swiftly, sent in spies who said, you know, it's really good. Milk and honey, grapes and everything's just there. It's great. There are some giants and there are some impregnable cities. And the majority of the people of God said, uh, no, then. Let's go back to Egypt and be slaves again rather than fight and take that which has been promised to us. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Adam and Eve failed to remain in Eden 
They failed to remain in the place of rest that had been given them because they disobeyed God's command. And that was because they came to distrust what God had told them. The serpent cast doubt in their minds about God's words. Their belief wavered, their trust wavered, and their hearts went astray, and they disobeyed. Here again, generations later, the same thing is going on in the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. The Hebrews failed to enter the rest that God had promised them and prepared for them. And again, the problem was disobedience. And again, it was born of distrust in God's word. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. This is our last scripture to read this morning. It's actually going to be bits of chapters 3 and 4 that we'll read. I just want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 3 and the last verse, verse 19. In this chapter, the verses I've just read from Psalm 95 are quoted. There's some commentary on them. And then the last verse of Hebrews chapter 3 says, so we see that they weren't able to enter because of their unbelief. It was because of their unbelief. God had promised them something. That was his word to them. But faced with the reality, they wouldn't trust him. God said, you go into Canaan. I'll make room for you by by driving out your enemies. God was poised to act, to create their place of rest. Spies went into the land. Most of them said it would be tough. The people doubted God's promise, and as a consequence, they they disobeyed. And for that reason, they failed to enter God's rest. This place that he'd prepared for them, where, where all would be well for them, described as flowing with milk and honey, a place where everyone would have their own vine and fig tree, and uh, A place where people would be included. This was the society that God had planned for them, reflected in the law of Moses, where people would be included on the basis of their adherence to truth rather than their ethnicity. A place where social inequalities were strongly legislated against. A place where there would be freedom from oppression and freedom to worship, to enter into a place where you could meet with the living God in a shared fellowship meal. In short, they were promised the kingdom of God on earth, and they missed it. This is the view from the mountain that Moses would have looked down from into Canaan. He never entered the promised land. Because of the rebellion of the people and their unbelief, this is as close as he got. It's a bit greener than that misty shot might suggest. Fertile land, a great place. And never got to enter in. Whole generation never got to enter in. They were promised the kingdom of God on earth and they missed it. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, for us now, living in Christ, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let's be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also 
have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it didn't combine it with faith. Trust in God. Jump to verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Let me just join this back up with regional vision and different places by saying, if God speaks to you about going to London, whether just to visit or to relocate, you'll find more rest there than you have where you are now. Or indeed, wherever else he may send you, there is rest to be found in following the direction that God sets for us. And so whatever expansion of concern we may have, whatever other places we may begin to pray for and become concerned about, as long as we follow what God leads us to do, there'll be rest. Because rest is the fruit of obeying God, or to put it a different way, rest is the result of being cooperators or of cooperating with God. He is the fountain of all restfulness. When his work is done, when he is active, then there's rest for us. And if we stick to his will for our lives, then we'll experience that rest too. We've just moved house this summer to Botley. Uh, Now, hear me right in this. It's a great place. Uh, It's not a particularly special place. It's not like that's the hub of the kingdom of God or... It's not a thin place, as people sometimes describe an easy... It's, it's just a, It's where we live, and we're... I, I'm trying to be positive... <laughs> without, I'm trying... Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, whatever I say, because there are some people for whom Botley is like, oh, yes, and there are other people that, as soon as if I say that, will think that I'm lapsing into the parochial thing that I'm precisely preaching against. So, a little bit caught there. But... Um, it's not, it's not that it's like the most, sort of the nicest place in the world. It's not for that reason that we would feel at rest there. But we know that God has led us there. When we were struggling to move house back in February, Bev and I spent a few days fasting and praying. And the particular house that we thought perhaps was where we ought to move to dropped in price by £20,000 to meet our budget as we fasted and prayed. And we thought, well, that's helpful guidance. That's tidy. And we have confidence that we've moved to a place where we should be. And it's feeling more and more restful. There's a peace that comes from... I I still don't know where quite a few of my possessions are. They're in boxes, and I can't find them. And we keep being late to things, because things I needed to pick up on the way out the door, I cannot find. And it's usually my fault, because I'm not very organized like that. But there is a new measure of rest that is settling upon us. And I believe that's not just our personal experience, but it's the promise of God. 
that as we obey him and follow his lead, there is rest that comes to us. There is a, a rest that he desires for us. Just read on a few verses towards the end of this chapter. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates. Even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's two things here, and then I'm nearly finished. Two things to say from verses 12 to 16. The first is to acknowledge what the scriptures do. It says actually in chapter 3, in verse 7, quoting from Psalm 95, as the Holy Spirit says, and then quotes the psalm. The scripture is the word of God to us, words spoken by the Holy Spirit. And it's not just a, a divinely given to-do list. The way it works is that it gets into us. It penetrates us. It doesn't just instruct us. It lives in us. I, I hope, and I'm sure that for many people here, you've experienced this, where whether you were reading the scriptures or having a conversation with a friend or perhaps even hearing somebody uh, preaching as I am now, you, you, you knew that, that something had got into you in a way that was beyond just normal human experience. The word of God went in to a deeper place than human words can go. Right down into your soul and spirit. Remember the first time someone explained to me how loving God was in sending Jesus into this world. It was Billy Graham. It wasn't a personal conversation. He was on, in a film at the cinema. And he talked about how if we were to look down and see ants scurrying around on the floor and to see that they were in trouble, we might perhaps do something to help them. But that Jesus coming to us was like God looking down at us scurrying around with our little troubles and choosing to become an ant and get in amongst and sort things out. And it was like, whoa, that's, that's touched something in me. That I didn't even, it's a place I didn't even know was there. It's penetrated me, and I am, I remain changed more than 25 years later. 
Okay, think of reading bits of the scripture and being challenged and changed. I remember reading Ephesians 5, where it says that as a husband uh, cares for his wife and as like um, washing her with um, God's word and thought, this means that when I speak, my words ought to be transforming for Bev and make her better. (laughs) And and I've got a long way to go in living up to that. Let's be clear. Um, But faith was put into me by the word of God. It got in amongst all the different conflicting ideas that go around in culture about gender and how is it supposed to work and what's your parents' example been and how does that work? I mean, all of that morass of confusing stuff, the word of God came right in and gave birth to something in me, which I think at least at times has been a benefit. Once or twice. I think maybe more than once or twice. This is what the word of God does, and that's why we read it. We read it because it gets into us, and that is a significant first step to obeying God and stepping into the rest that he has for us. We have a high priest, too, it says here. We have a high priest worth praying to. He's powerful, he's in charge of all things, sat on the throne of heaven, and he understands because he is a man, not just God, but man. He understands, tempted in every way. He sympathizes with us as we're tempted, and he invites us to come to him for mercy. And so we pray. We read the Bible. This is not complicated stuff. We read the Bible, and we pray. And there's something that maybe people might remember out of this morning I read, I pray, so I can obey. If we don't read God's word, we won't know what it is. If we don't turn to God in prayer, we'll never have the power to do it. But if those things come together, then I want to tell you this morning, we can obey. It is not beyond us. As we, we hear God's word and respond to it, confronted by the serpent, all Adam and Eve needed to do was say, uh, God, little help needed. <laughs> he promised to be there for them, walk with them in the court. All they had to do was pray. Human history would have been different. Standing on the edge of the desert, hearing tales of giants and impregnable cities. All the Hebrews needed to do was say, God, help! Please grant us victory. Step into the promise in obedience. I read, I pray, so I can obey. And we need to pause now and turn all of this to a few moments prayer before we finish this morning. I don't know I, I, I don't know quite what the touch point is of application for everyone here this morning. Um, for some, it might well be this idea of our Judea and Samaria. It may be that as I mentioned those places, that something went off in you, and then as I've spoken more, that God has nailed your cynicism. 
And uh, if, that, if, you, if you, you find yourself cynical about grand visions, I'm trying not to look at anyone in particular at the moment. Um, if, up. If, God's, no, if God's nailed you about having some cynicism about grand visions, because you kind of, you know, you've hoped for things before, or, or whatever the reasons might be, it's really simple. All you need to do is turn it to prayer. So God, well, I don't know about this, but I will pray. I will pray for Coventry. <laughs> I will. Uh, we might have to send people to Coventry. I'd never thought of that before this morning. <laughs> anyway, um, we just need to pray. In a group this size, there are always some some particular personal things. In a group this size, there will always be people for whom actually God's nailed you in the area of relationships this morning. That as you think about, well, I, I know what I should be doing, but I don't know that I can. Uh, all you need to do is pray. It's all God's asking from you this morning, that whatever relational entanglement you have, whatever it is that is complicated in a way that God wishes to make simple, all you need to do is pray. In a group this size, there's always people who've got issues with money as well. If your money is in a tangle and you are not enjoying the rest in it that comes from obeying God, well, I don't, I'm in debt. Uh, I don't know how to control my spending. I don't know how to manage my spending. Um, some people feel like those Amazonian tribes that have numbers for one, two, and many. And any large number just is confusing, and it's all just beyond you. It's not beyond God. We have a high priest, and we can pray. And that's all we're called to do. So I'd just like to shut up and let you think. And uh, in a moment of quiet, just ask God... um, If if there's not already something that's clear for you to pray about, ask him just to settle something in your heart and mind, and then we're going to take a few minutes to pray.